say good morning to you. This is a, a different kind of service for us this morning because uh, we're going to do what is referred to as an instructed liturgy or an instructed Eucharist. Rather than having one specific sermon time near the end of our service, what we're going to do is, is go through our regular liturgy, press pause at various points in the service to explain why we're doing what we're doing. So that's one sort of odd thing that's happening this morning. The other thing that's that's really kind of odd for us this morning is that as we come together to worship, we recognize that yesterday Florida won, Florida State won, Oklahoma State won, OU won, Tennessee won, Auburn won, Alabama won. So like all seven of the teams that we need to win in order to have a wonderful Nebraska even won. For us to have a, that's right, Martin, that was for you. For us to have a wonderful Sunday morning together, we need like seven or eight college football teams to win, and they all won yesterday. So I'm expecting joy and celebration, right? Dalvin Cook even set records yesterday. KU even won, Dave. Did you realize that they played football there? Oh, yeah, he's talking about basketball already. Listen, you know, one of the things that often uh, is asked is, is why do we gather to worship on Sunday morning? What's so special about Sunday? Well, let me tell you. I will tell you what's so special about Sunday. On the one hand, um, what we're doing on this Sunday morning is a 2,000-year-old tradition. The Sunday morning worship has been the tradition of the church since the church began. Uh, second century Christian leader, Justin Martyr, he tells us why. Why do we worship on a Sunday morning? Well, he says this, We hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day on which God put to flight darkness and chaos and made the world. And Justin Martyr goes on, Not only do we worship God on Sunday because it's the first day in which darkness fled from before His light, but on that same day, Jesus, uh, the Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. So while, of course, it's true that people can worship and do worship on any day of the week, it's especially appropriate for God's people to gather together to worship on Sundays, the day in which God called light into being, and that day in which Jesus, the light of the world, stepped from the tomb, the conqueror of darkness, gathered together to worship Jesus. And I use this word gather intentionally because it goes to the very heart of the church's identity and the very heart of worship. The church is a gathered people called out from the world and gathered by God into being and for worship. And so we come together uh, quite often at a time not of our choosing, in a place not of our choosing, even perhaps with a people not especially of our choosing. That was supposed to get a laugh. I'm, I'm glad that it kind of did. Uh, we do this, we come together, we're gathered because God has summoned and continues to summon worshipers into his presence. In this, we recognize that, that worship from the gathering together, what we do while that countdown clock goes, and, and what we do from the gathering together to the very end when we are blessed and dismissed out into the world, every part of that is worship. He initiates worship. God 
He creates, he redeems, he promises his kingdom to come. And so he summons, he gathers, he blesses with his presence, he feeds through his word, he feeds through the sacrament, and then he sends out as missionaries. And as we gather to worship, it is especially good and right for us to gather with singing, to gather with song. In just a few minutes, we'll hear uh, Doug read to us Psalm 100. And in the 100th Psalm, the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Al, I'm really glad that he says, make a joyful noise. And I know you are as well. I've, I've heard you in your joyful noise making. But he goes on, he says, not only make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, he says, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. And this call is repeated throughout the Psalms. Singing is good and it's right as we come into God's presence. Worship is essentially that which we do and which is done upon us to direct our devotion, our attention, our affection toward God. And, and singing aids us tremendously in this, we, we stand to sing. All of our bodies are involved in singing and in worship. And, and music often penetrates into the seat of our affections, the heart, quite powerfully. As we prepare for, for worship through song, let me just say this, uh, quoting Anglican pastor and theologian J.I. Packer. I've experienced God's presence most powerfully in worship, often during the singing, I suppose, because when we sing to him, we are looking hard in his direction. So we begin with song. We begin with our procession. We enter into the presence of God. So let's stand together and let's come into his presence with joyful noise. As we look at our worship service, there are a few things that we do every week that people kind of sometimes will ask, why do you do that the same way uh, every Sunday? Well, for us, we do it the same way every Sunday because, one, liturgy helps us to get out of the way so that God can get in the way. And when I use the word liturgy, I'm just really talking about that system, that pattern, that schedule that we follow week in and week out. And so every week we gather in song. Every week we pray together very specific prayers. Every week we celebrate the Eucharist. Every week we hear the word of God uh, read uh, and proclaimed. And, and, and one of the things that people often ask about is, why do you say the confession together every week? Why do you offer those prayers together every week? And, and maybe you get asked those questions as well. Maybe I'm the only one. But part of the reason why, or maybe it's the, the very best reason why we confess our sins every week and we offer prayers every week, is, is simply the reality that in worship we are reminded that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That what is is not yet what ought to be, but yet what ought to be is coming. And so we confess our sins because we recognize in us, and honestly, we recognize we are sinners in thought, in word, and in deed for what we have done and what we've left undone. I, I don't think that's just me that is a sinner in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I've left undone. I know, in fact, that's not me alone. And so we here we turn to God. We honestly say in confession, God, you're right. We've sinned against you. We are worse sinners than we think we are. But we turn to God knowing that he is faithful to forgive on account of Jesus and his work. 
And so in confession, we really are saying, God, you are right. I have sinned against you in these ways, but you are also right and good and true, and you have promised to forgive through Jesus Christ. I'm counting on that. And make what is what ought to be. That's confession. That's confession. And after confession, the priest stands up and declares absolution. The absolution is in accordance with Christ's promise to, uh, of power to bind and loose, the power of, to pronounce forgiveness of sins in his name. So it's not the priest who forgives, it's God who forgives. The priest is God's mouthpiece, so to speak, declaring the truth, the reality of God's forgiveness. So we confess knowing that what is is not yet what ought to be, and we offer our prayers together often as an expression of that very same truth. What is is not what ought to be. We pray for the church around the world, especially our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith. Their persecution is not what ought to be, but it is what is, and we pray for God to be in that and change it. We pray for justice and we pray for peace. We pray for our elected officials and our appointed leaders. We, we pray for the sick and the dying. We pray for those who do not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In all of those things, we pray for God to have his way, for God to bring about what ought to be, trusting and knowing that God will always do what he has determined to be right and good and true. And we offer our prayers of thanksgiving for that which God has done, that which God is doing, and that which God has promised to do. And having confessed our sins and having been assured of God's forgiveness, having offered our requests and our prayers and our thanksgivings to God, we then greet one another in the name of Jesus. We pass the peace. Now, passing the peace is more than just a, a short intermission to, to greet one another and discuss yesterday's football scores. Passing the peace is intended to be an important act of worship as those who have received God's forgiveness now declare their intention to forgive as they have been forgiven, to live as agents of God's peace. The passing of the peace is a declaration to be people of forgiveness and peace with everyone and anyone who are near us. So this morning we're going to offer our confessions and we're going to offer our prayers and Dorothy is going to come and lead us in the offering of our prayers. After the announcements, we always have an offertory. And an offertory is, is not just that point in the church service where uh, church members are encouraged to tithe, to, to give a financial gift. It is actually itself an act of worship. The first, during the offertory, it, it's quite often, quite common for us to have special music. Whether it's an offering of music by the choir or by a soloist like Chris or by the band, this is an offering of praise to the Lord. It is worship. The anthem itself is worship. And second, during the offertory, we do give to the Lord our tithes and our offerings. In recognition that all we have is uh, a gift from God's hand, we do return to Him uh, just a portion of that which He's given to us. We give to God from our treasures, and that's incredibly biblical. Uh, and if you don't believe me, listen to all of October's sermons. Where was my rim shot, Mitch? Getting ching. Oh, not even ready. Third, uh, during our offertory, bread and wine are brought forward out of the congregation for use in the Eucharist. 
in the ancient church, in the earliest church, uh, people used to bring their bread that they would bake at home, and they would bring their wine from their personal stores from home, and they would bring it for the use of the church. And here, we provide the bread and the wine, but every Sunday, we have people from inside of our congregation bring the bread and the wine up for use in the Eucharist. Bread and wine are powerful symbols. They represent the fruit of our labor. They are grain and they are grapes that have been transformed by human work and effort into bread and wine. And as the bread and wine come forward from the congregation, they come forward to be used by God to give us grace in the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. And every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it communion. Sometimes we call it the Eucharist. Every week we celebrate the Lord's Supper because, quite frankly, Jesus said to do it. When Jesus, in the words of institution, says, This is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me, that is not just a helpful suggestion, that's a command. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like it's a really good idea for us to do that which Jesus says we need to do. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and celebrate the Eucharist. So we do it weekly, every week. Secondly, uh, we do it weekly because we hear the gospel proclaimed in the service itself. Paul writes, St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. In the breaking of bread, we hear again the gospel. We meet with Jesus. We receive the assurance of God's love. We hear and we see enacted the gospel, the good news that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, incarnate, lived, died, and was raised for the salvation of sinners. Like a road sign or a photograph that points to something beyond themselves, a sacrament is a sign pointing beyond itself to the thing it signifies. The bread and the wine point us towards Jesus. That's why we do it. Because we, as we fill the bread on our tongues, as we taste the wine, we remember, we know, we are assured of Christ's full, sufficient, and final sacrifice. And we remember that he died and was raised from the dead, not for some nameless and faceless crowd, but he was crucified and raised for you and for me. The breaking of bread is the object, unobject of the church's devotion, because in it, the reality of Jesus' past action becomes manifest now in our present. It truly is communion because it is a meal that we take Together, whether you're sitting in the seats while others come forward or whether you're at the rail itself, you're all involved in this act of worship. Every single one of us. It's communion. We're eating together. And so in it, we we join our praise, not just with one another, but we join our praise with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We approach the holy and almighty creator of all that is under the cross of Jesus Christ. In the future, the Eucharist is a future-facing eschatological meal. Every time we participate in it, we're looking forward to that time when Jesus returns, when we get to eat this meal in his physical presence. A little bit later, 
that Doug is going to read from us, uh, read to us from the Revelation of St. John, the 19th chapter, where we hear about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this meal in which we participate this morning as baptized members of, of Christ's body, as we participate in the meal, we are declaring that things are not yet as they ought to be, but there is a time coming when they will be, and that time when they will be what they ought to be is when Jesus returns and we get to eat this meal in his presence. The present reality matters, of course, but as a future-facing people, we do not consider the present to be all there is as the really real, the ought-to-be, is coming with Jesus. And so in the sacrament, grace is given. God, the, the chief actor of worship, works in us by His grace to strengthen our faith, confirm our faith, stir up our faith. And in it, he is worshipped. So with the bread and wine having been consecrated, all who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are invited to the Lord's table. We come forward. We have an altar call every Sunday. Here at the rail around the table, we kneel in adoration. Here at the rail, we acknowledge our King. We receive the meal. We look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's ascribe to the Lord the honor due his name. Let's come into his courts with praise and with thanksgiving, and let's celebrate the Eucharist. Let's stand together for the reading of our gospel. <clears throat> it's the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. John, the fourth chapter, beginning at the 21st verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus is in the middle of his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will, speak, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. So after the reading of Scripture, this is usually the point where I pray that the Lord would uh, help me not to say anything stupid, <clears throat> and I pray that we would have ears to hear that which He has to say. I can't help but notice as we, uh, over the last couple of weeks, as we've talked about worship and we've looked at this John chapter 4 passage as our gospel reading every week, I can't help but stand here this morning and reflect a little bit on how this particular story ends. And I want to just say a few words before we talk about uh, this act of our liturgy. The story, uh, this woman's story, doesn't end at the well. If you read the rest of John chapter 4 all the way up to verse 45, what you find is that this woman, having encountered Jesus, having met Jesus, having tasted of his grace, then goes and tells other people. 
Jesus says that God is, is looking for worshipers. She essentially becomes a worshiper and then is used by God to make other worshipers. Many Samaritans were told by John, in fact, in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, that's Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Our jobs as believers in Jesus is to be like the woman at the well, to having tasted of the grace. What have we done here this morning? We've worshiped and we've received from God. Our job then is to turn around and be used by God to usher others into the kingdom, so to speak. Seems like that's relatively important for us to hear. Every one of us has a job to do. The Samaritan woman used by Jesus, used by God to create worshipers. How does he want to use you? How does he want to use me? It wasn't as if she was preaching uh, 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 some sort of revival with a big tent and a fancy band. She was just trying to get water. And Jesus interrupted her and then used her to interrupt others. Be a blessed interruption, I guess, is the only thing I would say this morning. Here at this portion of our service, we do look at the Word of God, and we, we do very much what we just did. We, we hear it read, we hear it proclaimed, and then we stop and we, we press pause and we look very specifically at what a, uh, a passage has to say about God, and because of what it says about God, what it means to us or for us. We come now to the Word, and in this act of liturgy, the people focus upon the Word of God. The Bible is God's authoritative Word. And here we stop and recognize that God is the ultimate author of this Scripture, and it can mean nothing more and certainly nothing less than that which He wants it and intended it to mean. And so we stop to understand what is it that God means when He talks about creation and life, and purpose? What is it that God means when he talks about sin, and grace, and salvation? The word of God is a means of grace, because in it, God proclaims himself, and in it, God proclaims how we can have life. And so all of the readings build toward the gospel in which we hear Jesus himself, whether in his words or in his deeds. After the reading of the gospel, the sermon is given, and trust me, the sermon is not given because I like to hear myself talk. The word of God is, is, is given in a sermon because it is vitally important to proclaim Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Paul encourages his friend Timothy to firmly believe in what he learned from Scripture, from the sacred writings, because the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the sermon is an act of worship in which our attention is once again pointed towards Jesus. There's salvation under no other name, as Peter says in the early chapters of Acts. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, as he himself proclaims in John chapter 14. And Jesus is necessary, sufficient, and essential to salvation for those within the church and those 
outside of the church. And so as uh, standing firmly in the stream of Orthodox historic Christianity, we are committed to the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Now here at our service after the sermon, we, we stop and we sing the creed. This is one of the most distinctive marks of our Emmanuel Anglican Church's 10 o'clock service. Typically, a response to the sermon is the saying together of the Nicene Creed, but here at the 10 o'clock service, we sing the Apostles' Creed. It is a public confession. It is a proclamation of the content of our faith. And at Emmanuel, quite often, it's the high point of our worship through music together. At the end of the service, a blessing is given. The people are dismissed to go in peace as missionaries, to love and serve the Lord, to be a divine interrupter, an agent of God, as this woman at the well in John chapter 4, proclaiming Jesus. That's really all we have to say to the world around us, is Jesus. And if that's not what our conversation is about, then we're probably just wasting our breath. From beginning to end, Anglican worship is about the people of God celebrating the victory of God by giving thanks to God and seeking the grace of God through word and sacrament. From beginning to end, Anglican worship is about Jesus because we are made God's people by Jesus. We are gathered by him. We celebrate the victory of Jesus in song, and we look for the coming of Jesus in our prayers and in the Eucharist. In all of this, we seek the grace of God given through Jesus.